You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methag Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadetzer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Haradetzer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Haradetzer and brought them back to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Berothai, cities of Haradetzer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Haradetzer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Haradetzer and defeated him, for Hadadetzer had often been at war with Toi, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to Yahweh, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadetzer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Saraiah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and this is my show, episode 758 of this podcast, to be more exact. Today is Friday, November 17th, 2023, and we're less than a week away from Thanksgiving in the United States, which is one of my favorite holidays. It's a great day. It's good to give thanks. It's also good to celebrate as you're giving thanks, not to give thanks in a morose way, but with turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes and cranberry sauce all that coming up soon 
of course, and we'll talk about Thanksgiving as we get closer to Thanksgiving. But right now, in this episode today, we're going to be talking about 2 Samuel chapter 8, of course, which we just read. Also, a article from Public Discourse, the journal of the Witherspoon Institute, Liberty, Authority, and the Good of Religion by Christopher O. Tolufson from 2009. So it's a bit dated. It goes back 14 years or so, 14 years plus actually at this point. But we'll talk about that at the very last because it's just been waiting. It's been waiting for me to deal with and discuss and present to you on this podcast for months now. And it's time. It's time to get to that. We'll save that for last. In the meantime, we'll also discuss Xi Jinping's recent visit to the United States, Senator Tuberville, and a piece, an editorial published in the Greeley Tribune, our local hometown newspaper here where I live in Greeley, Colorado, but it's not actually written by the staff of the Greeley Tribune, which is kind of odd to me that they publish pieces from the editorial boards of other affiliated newspapers. It's all one big company, really, that owns all these newspapers, local newspapers across the U.S. We'll talk about it. It'll be good. Uh, Is the American dream dead? That's a question we should probably look into. And this viral TikTok trend, which has just struck up surrounding the letter to America that Osama bin Laden published way back when that was his explanation of the 9-11 terror attacks, how young people on TikTok are relating to this letter as they're just discovering it, as they're reading it, they're saying, oh my, he's right. He was right. And we're the bad guys. Osama bin Laden was just one of these oppressed people like Hamas. And we're on the wrong side. We'll get to that. Rest assured. But first, before we talk about any of those good things, decent things, important things to consider, let's consider 2 Samuel chapter 8 and not just read it. Let's read it and meditate on what's being described here. So the heading, for starters, the heading is David's victories, which is to say David had victories. David is now king over Israel. He was king over just the tribe of Judah, and then God brought it about that he would be king over all Israel after having removed the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, two years into his reign, a very short reign, relatively. God has put David on the throne and has blessed him in many ways. One of the ways that God has blessed David and through David, the people of Israel, is David has success in battle wherever he goes. Whoever he's fighting, he wins those battles and he gets plunder. And there's a list of the peoples that he's fought against or that he's led Israel in battle against, including but not limited to these nations he subdued which is to say he conquered them. He defeated them. It's not just that David had victories. It's also that these guys had losses. The nations listed are Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and also Hadadetzer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. So then you could say Zobah is an additional nation. All of these, some of these may be foreign to you, but it's enough for you to know that these are separate, distinct peoples. Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, 
and Zoba. That's one, two, three, four, five, six nations subdued by David and the armies of Israel. That means at least six nations were subdued. The other side of the coin is obviously that they lost. David's victories is the heading. Why? Because the emphasis is on the fact that David has won these battles because God is with him. It says in verse 1, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. That word, subdued, that is a loaded word. You know, it's one thing if it's all just victories. Nobody has to lose. Nobody is defeated. That's one thing. That's the kind of mentality that a lot of us as Americans have, unfortunately, because we've been made soft. We have. We've been given a bad education, most of us, in the public schools. We've been given, in too many cases, a rather narrow view of God's word from mainstream evangelical Christianity. I would contend the positive encouraging emphasis goes too far on the positive and the encouraging and leaves most Christians who eat, breathe, and sleep mainstream evangelical Christian material flat-footed for the fact that for every victory, somebody or something is being defeated. There was a conflict there. If you miss the fact that there was a conflict there between Israel and Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and Zobah, then when somebody objects to it, you're not going to have an answer. And you should have an answer for why this is at least morally neutral. But then if God is blessing David in this way, how could it be uh, morally evil? How could it be a bad thing that peoples and nations are subdued by King David and Israel? When God is the one giving the victory, how can we call that a bad thing? People do. People who are hostile to Christianity, who are hostile to the West, who've been conditioned in many cases. It's not just their sinful nature. It's not just ignorance. It's also a deliberate and systematic and coordinated and long-term campaign to make them believe something that's not true. It's not just ignorance. It's not a vacuum. Something is filling that vacuum. But what is filling the vacuum? In many cases, it is Marxist ideology, Marxist classification of the weak and the strong, where the weak are the oppressed and the strong are the oppressor. It's breaking everybody down into the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. We say that the rich are always the oppressors and the poor are always the oppressed. And so a Marxist with that framework is going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 8, and they're going to say, yeah, but what about these oppressed peoples? And you say, who are you talking about? What oppressed peoples? You know, the ones that are being subdued. That is to say that they're being oppressed. That is to say that David is actually the villain and Israel has got to go. We have to be prepared for Marxist thinking to come in various shapes and sizes. Let me just briefly outline a few variations on what we need to look out for here when talking about, when thinking about the biblical text. One variation is the person who's a Marxist and they know that they love Karl Marx. (laughs) They love them some Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. They love them 
some Leninism and Stalinism. They love Mao. They love communism. They are consciously aware of the literature and they like it. They're good with it. They think that is the hero's tale of those men crusading after a fashion against the West, against inequality, against poverty. And yes, there's collateral damage and people die and that happens anyways. But if there's no God and communism is expressly, explicitly anti-God, not just atheistic, but anti-God, then there's nobody to be accountable to. There's just this vision of the good life, according to Marx and Engels, wherein at the end of the day, when this is all said and done and the dust clears, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it because you'll have world peace and nobody will be hungry. You'll have a chicken in every pot. You'll have everybody prosperous and equal. Now, what's curious, speaking of equity, because diversity, equity, and inclusivity are something of a Trojan horse, when packaged together with critical theory being the driving force behind DEI initiatives in corporations, you may have seen HR trainings on these kinds of things you may have seen in the literature or in the advertising of many corporations, emphasis on the words diversity, equity, and inclusivity. They're trying to curry favor with the critical theorists, but that is to say the communists. (laughs) You may have seen this. I'm sure you've seen this with regards to public education, that there's been a lot of controversy around critical race theory and radical gender theory, both alike very much coming from the same place, the same energy of classifying everybody as oppressor and oppressed is driving those initiatives of a piece with critical race theory is presenting all indigenous peoples, all people of color, all people with disabilities, all people who don't conform to so-called cisgender norms or heteronormativity, as it's also called, all of those people who don't conform to straight white male, (laughs) Anglo-Saxon, Christian, Protestant descriptors are presented as victims. And the way that this is done in the education system is very much in line with Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, which takes all of the ugliest stories of somebody being spoken ill of or excluded or abused when they were classified based on people of color or gender nonconformity or homosexuality, or if they were a woman, or if they were all of the above, even more so, all all the more, the more of these boxes you check, presenting all the stories of alleged mistreatment of those peoples in the United States, as if to say, because Zinn was a, a Marxist, he was a communist, as if to say, see, America is bad. America is bad. How do you know that America's bad because America did all of these things to all of these people. And it's time for the workers of the world to unite everybody to rise up all these oppressed peoples and tear down the oppressor, which is the United States of America. Well, equity being one of the three buzzwords that's used to say, we're pursuing a positive vision of a better future for all of us together. Equity, interestingly enough, shows up in 2 Samuel chapter 8, as in it shows up in a positive sense. So equity is presented here in verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered what? Justice and equity to all his people. Now you see this word equity. What is it? 
And how does it differ from the Marxist conception of equity? Well, I'm glad you asked. When I use the literal word Bible app on my iPhone to look at this word equity in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, I find this is the lexicon entry. The Hebrew word, it's a noun, it is sedekah. It means justice, righteousness, righteousness in government of a judge, ruler, or king, righteousness of law, righteousness of Davidic king Messiah, righteousness of God's attributes, or in a case or a cause, righteousness as in truthfulness, righteousness as in ethically right, righteousness as in vindication, justification, salvation of God or the prosperity of a people, righteous acts. Interestingly, there are 150 verses that this app tells me this Hebrew word can be found in. And as you may know, that same Hebrew word based on context can be translated into a different English word. And translators are supposed to be expert on what contextual clues would make this English word a better approximation than some other English word. But what's curious is scrolling down through the 150 verses where this Hebrew word sadaka appears, every other time it's translated either righteousness or righteous or right. So then you could read this, and I think it would be wise to read this, especially with the way that the word equity has been co-opted by the DEI folk. It would be appropriate to read this as, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness to all his people. What makes the distinction? What is so big of a deal about using the word equity versus using the word righteousness? The communists do not have righteousness in their uh, lexicon. We as Christians definitely do. In fact, if a definition of equity does not accord with God's standard of righteousness, then it's not actually a good thing. It's not something that we would want. And of course we know, and we should know if we don't, communistic Marxist conceptions of equity are unrighteous because they're predicated on envy and bearing false witness and even theft. Even if you take over the government of a country and you make it legal, so-called, that doesn't mean that it's lawful in the eyes of God. It doesn't mean that it's not oppressive because it very much is. And every time it's been tried, everywhere it's been tried, every culture it's been tried in, Marx's ideas, Marx and Engels, communist ideas, it has always been extraordinarily impoverishing and repressive and not really actually equitable, certainly not righteous. But then David has said to have administered justice and equity to all his people in the ESV. That's a little bit of a head scratcher. I would love to talk with a Bible translator at some point and ask them, why did you choose the word equity here, especially the ESV translators? Why did you choose the word equity here instead of righteousness? It would seem righteousness is the word to go with because that's what's used everywhere else, just about 150 instances of it being right, righteous, or righteousness, and you choose this one to be equity, why? In any event, if we see this as justice and righteousness, then we understand that this has to do with being right 
with God, which is to say, David is judging and reigning and setting policy and appointing and demoting people into positions of authority, as we read also in the last paragraph of this chapter, the names listed of who was over what, who made up his cabinet, so to speak, of his administration. David is doing this according to what God has said is true, what God has said is good, what is upright, what is fair according to God, what is just to reward those who do what is good according to God, what is just to punish those who do what is evil according to God. That is the characteristic of David's reign. That's his administration. It's marked by justice and righteousness. But then again, as we'll get into in this episode, as we talk through a few of these links that I have waiting in the wings, and we'll get to them in just a minute, we'll find that again and again, there are very real implications. There are very real effects to what our standard of justice is, how it's predicated, how it's administered. There are very real effects and consequences if our standard of equity bears no relation, in fact, is consciously trying to distance itself from God's righteous standard. We'll see that as we go through this episode and the links, and then finally ending up in Liberty, Authority, and the Good of Religion, the article I was telling you about. But before we get into everything all at once, because we can't talk about everything all at once, all at the same time, let's take these one at a time and let's start with our first link. Edward Teach over at Not to Be, thank you very much for bringing this to all of our attention or bringing it to my attention because I follow Not to Be pretty closely and I can in turn share this with my audience in case they don't follow Not to Be so closely as I do. The Guardian removes Osama bin Laden's Letter to America from 2002 article because woke Gen Z is praising the terrorist on TikTok and saying he was right. Before I say anything more, let me just play for you Libs of TikTok's compilation video. I'll play the audio, at least, for you. You'll just have to visualize or follow the link in the description for this podcast episode. But here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. And then I have some thoughts. And actually, before you even read the letter, I did want to mention, in reading the letter, I could only think of this tweet that I saw the other day. Under settler colonialism, any kind of resistance is branded as terrorist because the only acceptable violence is violence by the occupier. So please keep that in mind when reading the letter. Um, we really need to stop paying taxes because they ain't doing nothing but messing up everybody else. And, and America is the bully. And it's sad because they have brainwashed us to think that we was the best country in the plan on the planet. When in reality, we're the worst fucking country in the planet. It is just insane because this letter is so well written and so reasonably structured um, in an argument. Like you got to present your findings. You got to, you know, you got to state your cause, all of that. Like everything he said was valid. Okay, so... There we go. I apologize for the F-bomb there. For those of you who were listening, I didn't prep you for it, 
but there you go. It is what it is. It's hardly the most disturbing thing in this compilation video, though. The audio that I just played for you, you have young people on TikTok responding to, reacting to Osama bin Laden's letter to America saying he was right. Here we've been brainwashed. You heard the one guy say we've been brainwashed into thinking that America is the best country in history on the face of the planet. We're actually the worst country. Well, wait a second. Is it possible, friend, that you've been brainwashed into believing that America is the worst country? You didn't already have the view <laughs> that Osama bin Laden is articulating in his letter from 2002, except that you got the conditioning, you got primed by your education, by pop culture. You were primed by Black Lives Matter and Antifa and critical race theory and critical theory infusing itself into your curriculum, into your schooling, and into your pop culture influences. And oh, by the way, you're on TikTok, which is owned by China. And it's well known that China manipulates the algorithms in American TikTok very differently than they do in Chinese TikTok. Chinese youth on TikTok, they are being conditioned psychologically to want to be virtuous, upstanding, high-achieving people. Americans on TikTok are being conditioned to kill themselves. <laughs> I mean, really, with bad thinking, with bad attitudes, with frivolity, being unserious people who don't know anything except how to twerk and how to do stupid human trick challenges that likely as not will land them in the hospital, if not kill them. You're saying these things on TikTok because you're on TikTok, which is to say that you're also watching videos on TikTok, which is to say you can't trust that the algorithms are just naturally putting this to the fore as Xi Jinping is coming to America. I think, I personally, I think that it's 100% within China's repertoire, their modus operandi, their larger plans and purposes in relation to America and the world, global hegemony, global dominance, and seeing America as the chief impediment to the rise of China. It's absolutely something that the Chinese Communist Party would do to say, we're going to amplify this, we're going to make it go viral, and then these kids are going to pick it up because we've primed them, we've conditioned them to receive this and to sympathize with Osama bin Laden because we've already infused the curriculum and their culture, including online but not limited to online, for decades with this view that you have oppressor and you have oppressed. If Osama bin Laden lost and America won and took him out and killed him and won after a fashion for a time in Afghanistan and elsewhere in the Middle East against the terrorists who chanted death to America and flew planes into our buildings, if we won for a time, we're the bad guys. That's all you need to know is that we won. Oh, we must be the oppressor, right? We only have two categories, oppressor and oppressed. America must be the villain of the story. Osama bin Laden, that poor guy, he was right. He was just a freedom fighter. The response right now to Hamas, as scary and surprising as it is for so many who want to believe that this is just a passing phase, they should not have been surprised. But then people just like me for years, for decades, 
have been warning, you need to get your kids out of the public schools. You need to be more involved in what they're watching, what they're listening to, what they're reading, because some of this is propaganda. It's propaganda from communists who want to condition us to prefer communism over American liberty, American freedom in a Western sense, predicated on Judeo-Christian morality, for one, a Christian conception of what is true and what is good, righteousness, equity according to the Bible, which would be sadaka, which would be righteousness. These young people have progressively been conditioned more and more to bring us to this point, and it gets worse. It will get worse. These young people next, if China does what they did with their own people in their own country, if they were willing to do it to themselves and to their countrymen decades ago under Mao, what makes you think that we're somehow so special, one, that they wouldn't do it to us or try, and two, that we wouldn't fall for it? As long as mommy and daddy can keep on going off to work with their nine to fives, earning two incomes, paying the mortgage, paying the car payments, going on nice vacations, and the kids can go off to public school and learn to hate their own country and hate themselves and hate their parents even. If their parents are conservatives, ooh, don't trust them. They don't understand. We'll come up with some way of delegitimizing them to where you don't talk with them. You come and talk with you know, the, <laughs> the pink-haired, short-cropped uh, piercings for days and tattoos lefty who just graduated with a teaching degree and wants to tell them all about our country's true history. Oh yeah, your parents think it's this, but yeah, the kid who speaks up, who actually knows what's up and has read the constitution and has read American history and thinks George Washington was pretty great. The owning slaves question, notwithstanding, who thinks that our civil war was quite a lot of demonstration, that not everybody was on board with the treatment of black Africans. Yeah, that kid, we'll make sure we turn the volume down on him. He'll get mocked. He'll get ridiculed. Maybe his grades will suffer. Maybe he'll be called into the principal's office. We'll embarrass him in front of his peers. And eventually, we'll get him to be so quiet or we'll also make him so much of a pariah in the eyes of his classmates that progressively... Year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation will come to this point and it'll get worse actually. Because now it's this, today it's this, without an intervention, it will be, you have these sleeper cells who've come into the US across an open Southern border with Mexico. Thanks Obama, thanks Biden. You'll have these sleeper cells actively recruiting with great success among American youth, particularly those who've been marching in the streets and carrying signs and posting to social media about Israel, for instance, being the bad guy and Hamas. Oh, those those Hamas freedom fighters, so-called, they're the villains. It doesn't get better from here. It'll get worse. And you should probably read up on Mao's cultural revolution and how the communist Chinese decades ago used children to destroy their own parents for the whole community to see as a way of shocking the system and getting everybody else to be so froze up, to go so code black that they wouldn't be able to stop the, the advance of communism in China. You can't understand how far 
the people who believe these things, who really truly believe these things, they're not just mixing in a little bit because that's the second category I mentioned before. There's the guy who knows that he knows that he loves Marx. There's also the second category of somebody who's not really sure, you know, maybe Marx is just a guy and uh, people make him into too much of a bogeyman and, you know, communism doesn't exist. Communism can't hurt you. There's those folks who nevertheless end up compromising with communism and they give a little bit more, a little bit more still to the communists week after week, month after month, year after year. They normalize it until boom, the trap is sprung and there's no getting out because they're willing to play for blood. They're playing for all the marbles. They have the whole world to gain as they see it in pursuing their vision of the good life. But you can't just listen to the positives that they present as to what they're promising. What they're saying will be produced and delivered is not what will be delivered. They're promising a chicken in every pot, essentially. Equity, but it's not equity. It's tyranny. It's complete and total repression of every man, woman, and child until Marx's dream has been realized that nobody belongs to anybody. Nothing belongs to anybody. It all is within the state, nothing outside the state, which is to say, for now, you think you have the freedom to speak and you're expressing your own opinion. You didn't come to that opinion on your own. Somebody brought you to it. You think you've been brainwashed to think America was a great country. You've been brainwashed to hate your country, actually. And I'm seeing it in real time. I'm hearing it right now, young person on TikTok. There's a third category of person who thinks communism is bad, but they don't think that it's going to happen here that communists are going to try what they did in China or in Russia or in other places. There are people who think communism's bad, but that's a thing of the past. Communism is not really an ideology that's active in the world. What have you been reading? What have you been watching? Who have you been listening to that you think communism, you third type of person, you think communism is a thing of the past? See also China, right? China is ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. They are self-consciously communistic now, today. (laughs) And they're trying to take over the world today, like right now. And they're doing so in very asymmetrical ways. Their way of propagandizing is to try and get America's youth through the education system, through social media, through pop culture, to turn on the older generations. And they're counting on, they're expecting that the older generations, when they see their own children rising up violently against them to institute communism, to tear down this system and to institute communism, they're counting on the older generations being so soft, so self-indulgent, so acquiescent, so cowardly, that when their young people are the ones chanting for their demise, they'll just take the easy way out. And they'll say, okay, fine, you're right. What do I know? But then that's it. That's the end of America. At least the end of America as we know it. You know, speaking of Osama bin Laden, the letter from Osama bin Laden to America, and the 9-11 terror attacks. I was the age of some of these kids on TikTok when the 9-11 terror attacks actually happened, when, when they actually took place. I remember coming down the stairs. I was homeschooled at the time. And really, for most of my K through 12, I was homeschooled. But I was homeschooled back on 
September 11th, 2001. And I came down the stairs and the TV was on and it was turned to the local news, which of course broadcasts national news during certain hours. Some hours it would be just the local news and some hours it would be the national news. And here was this footage live from New York City of smoke billowing out of some skyscrapers that I didn't recognize because I I didn't really care much about New York City. It was so far off. I didn't know anything about the World Trade Center. I didn't care. But I knew that that was unusual. Oh, that's kind of weird. What's going on? I remember watching and following coverage throughout the day and thinking, wow, that's that's really concerning. I had no idea. I had no expectation of how transformative that event was. But then if I'm trying to be sympathetic with Gen Z as they're responding to Osama bin Laden's letter, however little I appreciate it in the moment, they appreciate even less because it happened in many cases before they were even born or before they were old enough to even comprehend speech if they had been born. They were so young that they don't remember what America was like before 9-11. I do. I remember being in my single digits growing up in the 90s and Bill Clinton was in office. And the biggest thing we were stressed out about was what the definition of the word is was and whether he had had relations with Monica Lewinsky. And isn't that a just terribly scandalous thing that a president of the United States is acting this way in the Oval Office with somebody who's an intern in his administration? That's terrible. And now he's lying about it. And now he's just smiling unapologetically. And wow, so many people are running interference and they're saying that that's okay. See, that was the 90s, right? The 90s were generally prosperous, generally peaceful, generally a confused time as the baby boomers were coming into positions of political power. And then here's George W. Bush. He's president. Goodbye, Bill Clinton. Hello, George W. Bush. And the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And what is this about? Why do these guys hate us? Who do they think they are? They're going to kill thousands of our people. What, what did we do to deserve this? This is not fair. This isn't right. That's not just. And so next thing you know, we were off to war. And who were we fighting? We were fighting terrorists as, yes, I think it's appropriate to call them when their intention is to commit random acts of violence, horrific violence against men, women, and children. They don't regard any American as innocent per se, not in their conception because we're all guilty, all alike guilty of helping to support the system. Well, who does that sound like? It sounds an awful lot like the critical race theorists who demand that you be an anti-racist, but they hated us and they wanted us all dead and they wanted the world to see America humbled. And I remember way back when my friends, my family, my brother, two brothers-in-law going into the armed forces, going off in deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan and coming back with stories, going off to training, coming back with stories. And I remember reading about this and studying it and trying to contemplate what is going on and why did this happen? Where is this coming from? And do you know what it really boils down to? It boils down to a mixture of communism and Islamism, an alliance, an unholy alliance between communism and Islamism, which both alike agree that America has got to go. America and the West that aligns itself with America needs to be, if not destroyed, rendered inert, rendered impotent. And you have to start by convincing us in the West 
that we're the cause of all the problems in the world. Our prosperity is the reason other people are hungry instead of actually our prosperity being informed by, and in many cases, not all, but in many cases, blessed by God, then resulting in generosity as we go and seek to feed those who are hungry elsewhere. The communists see somebody hungry and they see an opportunity to come in and pitch communism. Americans in particular have seen hungry people other places in the world and we've said, you know what, here's an opportunity to feed that person because we want them to not be vulnerable to communism because communism is this terrible, terrible thing. And the communists... The propagandists for Marx and Engels and Lenin and Stalin and Mao, the propagandists on that side have said, oh, see, that was just you guys trying to exploit their poverty and you're the reason that they're poor in the first place because look how prosperous you guys are. It's exploitation and you don't pay your workers in your own country a fair wage and workers of the world unite and and then they're off, right? And they do this here in America. Sololinsky bragged about it openly in Rules for Radicals, going into minority communities and trying to convince people of color, people who are immigrants, people who were of various subset ethnic groups, or again, with regards to sexuality, people who identified as gay men or lesbian women or transgendered. These communities were the target of Saul Alinsky's community organizing. Well, just like that, happened here in America, so also the communists in the Middle East set about to making in treaties to Muslims. Bitter at the relative wealth and prosperity and strength of the West compared to Islam's poverty, repression, unhappiness. And the communists have worked with the Islamists for decades because they find agreement and both alike think that they're using the other And at the end, they'll have the upper hand, but it's very similar to Stalin and Hitler. Yes, we work together, but at any moment, we might turn on each other, and then who knows what will happen. China is trying to convince our youth that the Muslim terrorists were right, because then what? If you convince the youth of America that the Muslim terrorists were right to murder thousands of our people and to want to murder many, many more If you can convince the young people that that's true, well, then we'll stop fighting those people. We'll stop trying to stop them. We'll start trying to help them. But then ultimately, at the extreme end of trying to help those terrorists, you have young people in America just becoming terrorists. That's where it goes. It's one thing to say, you know, hey, uh, some of this is fair, right? Some of these are fair criticisms, and we should really do something about that. And we regret that that is part of our past, right? That's within the bounds, of course. But then that's not what is being put forward. What's being put forward is a total and absolute repudiation to the end of destroying America. America was great because it was good. And by that, I don't mean morally perfect, but I mean America had humbled itself in previous generations before the mighty hand of God. And God exalted America, I believe, because America humbled itself before the mighty hand of God. Insofar as America has become proud, We have correspondingly, and to that extent, also become extraordinarily vulnerable to being very hands-off and presuming that nothing will ever happen to us. Well, that's right up until somebody pumps poison into the minds and the hearts of the young people in our own country to turn them against us. And they themselves, they don't have to invade, they're already here, they themselves become the instruments 
of our destruction. Either A, not helping to stop those who want to murder us, or B, actively helping those people to destroy us, or C, just straight up joining the people who are trying to destroy us. Hey, where do I sign up? How do I help? How can I, can I join you? Can I, you know, and that's where it goes. This is so dangerous, but it's also entirely predictable. In fact, it's been predicted. This should not be surprising, even though it's very alarming. Now, for our next treatment of this, or continuing on in discussing it and thinking about it, I'll refer you to Amanda Prestigiacomo's piece from yesterday at the Daily Wire titled Man Who Killed Bin Laden Responds to Viral TikTok Trend Praising the Terrorist's Letter to America. Here's a quote from that former Navy SEAL. Deceit is a mask the devil puts over the eyes of useful idiots. I would agree. Also, lying, as Joseph Pieper says, is a way of preventing others from participating in reality. The people who are believing these lies are being prevented from participating in reality. It's an unreality, but then so much of what their life has been to this point has been an unreality. Being babysat by video games and the TV when they were younger has turned into TikTok. They think telling them what they need to know, this is real, right? This is real people just like me telling me how it is and what they think. That's how I'll form my opinions. Oh, but whose opinions are you being presented with on TikTok? Thanks to China's algorithms, thanks to China's agenda. This is like <laughs> so obvious, right? But I'll play for you cut two. This one's a little longer. This is another compilation video of this TikTok trend that's just cropped up. Thousands of TikToks, Yashar Ali tweets out over the past 24 hours, thousands of TikToks at least have been posted where people share how they just read Bin Laden's infamous letter to America in which he explained why he attacked the United States. The TikToks are from people of all ages, races, ethnicities. Here it is, cut two. Listen for yourself. This morning I read Letter to America, which is Osama bin Laden's letter to America explaining why he attacked Americans. And I am ashamed to say that I not only have never read this letter, but I didn't even know this letter existed. It's wild and everyone should read it. If you haven't read it yet, read it. However, be forewarned that this has left me very disillusioned and I feel the same exact way I felt when I was deconstructing Christianity. I feel uh, a little bit just confused, like I have entered into another timeline. What is this? And yeah, so go read it. So I just read a letter to America and I will never look at life the same. I will never look at this country the same. I will never, I, please read it. And if you have read it, let me know if you are also going through an existential crisis in this very moment, because in the last 20 minutes, my entire viewpoint on the entire life I have believed and I have lived has changed. Please read that entire letter. I need everyone to stop what they're doing right now and go read. It's literally two pages. Go read A Letter to America. And please come back here and just let me know what you think. Because I feel like I'm going through like an existential crisis right now. And a lot of people are. So I just need someone else to be feeling this too. 
I need you to stop what you're doing and go read A Letter to America. It is literally the craziest thing I've read in a while. And while I can't say that I'm that surprised, I am pretty shocked. So go read it and tell me what you think because I really also need to talk to other people about this. And actually, before you even read the letter, I did want to mention, in reading the letter, I could only think of this tweet that I saw the other day. Under settler colonialism, any kind of resistance is branded as terrorist because the only acceptable violence is violence by the occupier. So this is fucking insane. I just read Osama bin Laden's letter to America, which I will be going through right here, but it's actually so mind-fucking to me that terrorism has been sold as this idea to the American people and honestly just so many Western inhabitants within certain nations that this group of people, this random group of people just suddenly wakes up one day and just fucking hates you, just wants you dead, wants you gone. And this is all because they believe that they're better than us. Like that is the root of terrorism. It doesn't make sense. They just hate your fucking nation. But reading this letter, it becomes apparent to me that the actions of 9-11 and those acts committed against the USA and its people were all just the buildup of our government failing other nations. in majority of these situations and this letter was insanely eye-opening i really urge everybody to google and read it because i thought that i had quite a lot of media literacy but this takes it to a whole nother fucking level where i was just like holy shit like propaganda is genuinely so deeply embedded into our fucking dna read a letter to america you're probably waking up you probably have a lot of questions welcome to the club but we don't have a lot of time to sit and talk about everything because there's still so many puzzle pieces that we just do not know about go read a letter to america like seriously go read it type a letter to america in google or whatever you use then come right back because this makes a lot more sense it explains so much and i guarantee you it's going to blow your mind and let's talk about it so go read it come back it's a lot it's a lot Life does not. Oh my god. Oh my god. Hey, 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 hey. Are you even paying attention to me right now? I read Osama bin Laden's letter to America. The way this letter is going viral right now is giving me the greatest sense of relief. If you're Muslim and you've lived in the U.S. since 9-11, you know more truth than the typical citizen. Now it's all coming to light because of Palestine. Are you even paying attention to me right now? Okay, again, with the apologies for the language. Lots of F-bombs, lots of profanity in there. But then again, like I said before, the more concerning thing to me, the more disturbing and alarming thing to me than the language of this or that expletive is the general sense of what's being communicated. What's being communicated is Osama bin Laden was right. America's the bad guy. Ah, back in 2011, when I first heard that we got him, I was so excited. And now when I'm reading his letter in 2023, it only took me a dozen years. Now I'm like, oh no, he was right. How did we get to this point? How did we get to this point where a significant number of young people in America 
when they read what Osama bin Laden says, it agrees with them or they already agreed with it, actually. It's because the education system has been conditioning them to this end. It's because popular culture and social media have been conditioning them to this end. You want to talk about brainwashing. They've been indoctrinated to believe in the Marxist classification of everybody into two groups, oppressor and oppressed. And again, going back to 2 Samuel chapter 8, you can believe that it's a bad thing that David subdued these nations that are listed if you have that as your framework. If your framework is Marxism, then David is the bad guy in the case of those conflicts with surrounding nations. David's the bad guy, and all those nations were victims. And if you believe, if you agree with the Marxists that there is no God, well then, one, I ask you, how is it that you come up with a moral paradigm to say that it's bad what David did? But then also, two, for those of us who don't agree with you, we believe that there is a God. And we don't just believe that there is a God. We believe in Christ Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, sits at the right hand of the Father. He ascended on the third day after he was crucified, died, and was buried, just as it was written. For those of us who believe that there is a God, we say, (laughs) you're going to be willing to do whatever it takes. If you believe, if you agree that America is the bad guy and Osama bin Laden was the victim, he was just a freedom fighter. If you believe that Hamas represents the side of the right, then you also believe that China is on the side of the good. But then just like it took you a dozen years to read Osama bin Laden's letter, you don't even know what you don't know now with regards to what these people have really done. You want to talk about oppression? Look at how women are being treated in Afghanistan now. Since America and our allies completely withdrew, China came in, the Taliban was restored to power. Now it's Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the Taliban repressing women, murdering, raping, torturing men, women, and children on purpose, not accidental collateral damage as they were fighting. No, no, systematically oppressing, but you don't see that, right? You can't see that if you've been brainwashed by the likes of Howard Zinn or his ideological descendants, his ideological heirs. You can't see it because the Taliban is poor. Yeah? because they have a lower socioeconomic status than America. So all you really need to know is socioeconomic status. But then that brings us to our next topic, which is how are Americans doing socioeconomically compared to how we were doing a dozen years ago or 22 years ago. See also Cardinal Pritchard's post from November 13th, at not to be, be prophecy fulfilled. Migrants flee back to South America after realizing the American dream doesn't exist anymore. What's dark humor about this? This is 20 months ago, not quite two years. The Babylon Bee published this satirical article with the headline, illegal immigrants flee back to Mexico after being dropped off in crime-ridden wasteland. That was satire. That was supposed to be farcical. That was supposed to be funny. Like, ah, yeah, right. Well, we'll no, things are getting bad when that happens. Fast forward to Monday. The New York Post published this real news article. Some fed up migrants already heading home. American dream doesn't exist anymore. Here's a 
quote from this actual, not the Babylon Bee, news reporting from the New York Post. Some Venezuelan migrants who trekked thousands of miles to the U.S. in search of a better life are so disheartened, they say they're already heading back home. Michael Castillon, 39, told the Chicago Tribune he has had enough after he, his wife and teenage stepdaughter, spent five months sleeping either in a police precinct or a crowded city shelter in the now brutally cold Windy City. He's also been unable to secure a job permit or enroll his daughter in a local school, two of the main reasons things they thought would bring a better life in the U.S. Quote, the American dream doesn't exist anymore, end quote, Castillon told the paper on the eve of his family's departure. Quote, there's nothing here for us. We just want to be home, end quote. Castillon told the Tribune of the South American country he earlier fled. More from the non-satirical New York Post. Quote, fed up with the lack of housing and job opportunities, Castillon eventually followed in the footsteps of other disillusioned asylum seekers and turned to Catholic charities to obtain plane tickets for his family to travel to Texas. From there, they will somehow find a way to return to their native Venezuela, he said. Quote, how many more months of living in the streets will it take? No, no more. It's better that I leave, end quote, he said. Quote, at least I have my mother back home, end quote, he said of the South American nation he fled earlier this year. All of this brings me to the answer to the riddle of how we're doing socioeconomically compared with a dozen years ago when Osama bin Laden was found and killed, rightly so, and compared with 22 years ago when the 9-11 terror attacks happened in the first place. What has changed? Now, when people flee Venezuela to get a better life, more freedom, more economic opportunity, greater political stability in the United States, now they spend months on the streets where it's not what they expected, and they go back to Venezuela because it was better in Venezuela than when they came here. What we might find, friends, is that very shortly, Our illegal immigration problem is resolved, but we have a new problem that takes its place in the form of the total collapse of the United States of America. And the issue, the real big danger won't be that we have so many homeless people, we have so many people from foreign countries and we don't know where they came from, how they got here, what their intentions are. The real big danger will be that our own people, restless godless and having been brainwashed in what is effectively Marxism, rise up and throw off all restraint, throw off this government. That is to say that the United States of America ceases to be a country in any, in any recognizable sense, that it ceases to be a country because we destroy ourselves from within. That's a very real possibility. But then This goes back years and years. Things that were read by me about Barack Obama and his radical connections with Bill Ayers and the Weather Underground, with Saul Alinsky's type of community organizing. The plan was to make America incapable of sustaining itself internally. That was the plan. Get everybody dependent on welfare programs open up the borders and say there's no limit to who all can come here and from where, just let everybody in. Ah, yeah, a few will kick back, but most will just lose track of and they'll disperse, pump drugs into our cities 
Thanks, China. Thanks for that. Thanks, Mexico. Thanks for that. Fill our entertainment media with senseless, selfish, frivolous, short-term thinking, immediate gratification. Break down the nuclear family. Break down the extended family. Break down anybody, any individual brave enough to be Christian in public, to express Christian morality, Christian truth in public. What will you get? You'll get the collapse of the United States of America. Why is that desirable? Because America won the Cold War. Because America needs to lose the next Cold War, the current Cold War that we're in with China, in order for China to institute global communism. See, the American communists who have kind of sort of an idea of what they're for or what they think they're for, what they've been conditioned to believe that they're for, they are the useful idiots in the West. I think they've always expected that the communism would be administered by them globally. No, no, no. No, the communist Chinese just want you long enough to collapse the United States and then they'll administer the global communism. And that is a very scary thought, especially when you consider how much has been automated, how much surveillance there is in China on the Chinese people, how controlling the Chinese government is, how they don't have any limits. There is no limit what they will do to the individual in pursuit of their idea of equity. But it is not at all, at all, at all, at all, what equity means in the context of 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's not righteousness. In fact, it's unrighteousness. It is the cementing in of a satanic view of the cosmos, starting with a satanic view of God, but then proceeding on to a satanic view of man, which ultimately destroys man, all the while promising you will become like gods. Hath God said? No. He knows in the day that you will eat of the fruit of this tree, your eyes will be opened. You'll become like him, knowing good and evil. That's the satanic mission of Marxism. And what we're seeing, it's not a bug. It's a feature of the leftist program decades long in America. Sure, yeah, lots of people have been taken in by the claim that this is all good intentions, right? Oh, it's compassion. We have to have compassion for those who are in these various tough situations. But actually, really truly, when it's the Marxist behind the scenes who's picking winners and losers, it's not as much compassion for oppressed peoples here as it is hatred and loathing for America for having held up the vision of Marx and Engels and Lenin and Stalin and Mao. If you believe that Marx was right, then the worst tragedy of the 20th century wasn't anything that happened in Russia or happened in China with regards to the treatment of the people of those countries by their own governments. Actually, the worst thing that happened in the 20th century was that America was able to successfully contain communism. And then all of the poverty, all of the suffering in communist countries or in countries that were battled over because the communists went in and agitated and they wanted to bring about a communist takeover of the country. And then we sent our people in and we worked against them and we backed and supported folks who would work against the communists. Sometimes we even sent troops in. See also Korea, see also Vietnam. The worst tragedy of the 20th century to the Marxist is that America was wealthy enough and strong enough to accomplish that. 
So then, what's the comeback story? The comeback story is you weaken America and you make America not prosperous, but impoverished. That's the goal. And that's what we're seeing. And it corresponds to a greater receptivity of Americans, just like the Marxists wanted to for a long, long time, going back to Gramsci and the origin of critical theory in the first place as a custom tailor-made solution for Western prosperity, not being a good fit for the communist uprisings in places like Russia. You know, people are so free and so prosperous. Why would they want communism in the West? What you have to do, Gramsci figured out, is you have to convince them that the only reason they're so prosperous, the only reason they're so free, is because everybody else in the world who's not here is being oppressed. And it's your fault because you maintain the system. Oh, well, in that case, we should tear the system down. Yeah, good idea. That's what I was thinking, the community organizer says. And then (laughs) runs as a Democrat for Congress and maybe even becomes president and then maybe even overhauls all of the bureaucracies to turn them on conservatives. Hmm, sound familiar? Speaking of, briefly, we will touch on an opinion piece from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch editorial board republished in the Greeley Tribune. As I've said before, with these sorts of things, I think it's weird that we have this broad net of local newspapers owned by relatively few, (laughs) and then they can easily coordinate what appears to be a voice in your neighborhood, but is actually from the other side of the country. And they all have to kind of sort of say, the same thing or very similar things. Anyway, nevertheless, this opinion piece states, Senator Tuberville's military blockade is dangerous. End it now. What's in view here is Republican U.S. Senator Tommy Tuberville from Alabama holding up appointments from the Biden administration to our various high and low offices in the military, in the Department of Defense, in the various branches. He's holding up supposedly, allegedly over 350 of these because he is upset at the Pentagon responding to Roe v. Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court last summer with saying that they would make sure that service members and their families still have access to abortion if they're stationed in a state that has said, nope, you can't get an abortion in this state. The military, the Department of Defense, will supposedly pay for you to travel to another state to get an abortion where it is legal in the U.S. What's concerning about that is, according to Tommy Tuberville, that amounts to a backdoor funding by the U.S. taxpayers of abortion. That is not the concern as far as the editorial opinion published in the Greeley Tribune From St. Louis, what's really concerning is that this is dangerous and Republicans need to check Tommy Tuberville. They need to make sure that Biden's appointees to the military are confirmed and Tommy Tuberville basically is the villain of the story as far as they're concerned. Now, what's not presented? What's not presented is that there's another solution to this problem, which is that the Pentagon could (laughs) the Pentagon could reverse course on their stated position. No, no, no. That's not what's holding up these appointments. It's Tommy Tuberville. But that is to say, it's the folks who are 
opposed to abortion. It's the Republicans. It's the conservatives. You see, these guys are the dangerous ones. They're making America less safe. It's not the other side just as much sticking to their guns and saying, no, we're going to make sure that abortion access is unfettered. And in fact, we're going to increase it. You know, we're going to increase access to abortion just to make sure that you all know how virtuous we are because abortion is a human right. It's a woman's right to choose what to do with her unborn child. I bring this to your attention because in contrast to hundreds of appointees to the military who are supposed to be confirmed by the Senate, speaking of bipartisanship, it's not much bipartisanship if you say all the Republicans who would actually disagree and say, nope, this is not going to work. This is a no-go for me. Uh, you know, It's not much bipartisanship if you say they have to be silenced, they have to be stripped of their committee positions or basically neutralized in their capacity to provide oversight or to be a check and a balance if they would say no. you know, Oh, you're a check and a balance. So long as you don't say no, as long as you don't stop us from doing whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it, however we want to do it. So the editorializing here from the St. Louis newspaper editorial board, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and then coming to us here locally by way of the Greeley Tribune, the editorializing here is our opinion is that Senator Tuberville is dangerous. The Republicans are dangerous. As long as they're the kinds of Republicans, as long as he's the kind of Republican that would actually stand in the way of what we want and what we are insisting on, what we're planning to do. Obviously, it's just as easy to say we're going to be bipartisan and we're going to work with what Tommy Tuberville has insisted, which is not just reasonable, it is equitable in a biblical sense. It would be just, it would be righteous to say that the Department of Defense spending the taxpayers' dollars will not be in a roundabout way funding abortions for military service members and their families. It would be just, it would be equitable. Why do I say that? Because it's unjust. It doesn't get any more unjust than murdering an unborn child in their mother's womb because you just want to keep this person in uniform focused on the mission. No, they don't have time for this child to be born and for them to take time off to take care of this child. They'll just get an abortion. No, that's unjust. That's wicked. That is not judging with right judgment to give into that. And the problem here is not that Tommy Tuberville is holding up these appointments. The problem is that the Biden administration and the people that they've already put in place are insisting this is how it's going to be. It's our way or the highway. They've staked their reputations. They've staked their credibility on holding the line. And it's just as reasonable for Tommy Tuberville and Republicans and conservatives to do the same right back. It's not bipartisanship to just give the Democrats whatever they want. That's what kind of bipartisanship the St. Louis Post-Dispatch editorial board is calling for. And we should call it out. We should recognize that that's how we've gotten to this point where Venezuelans who come into the country illegally with their families for a better life are actually, after several months of languishing in poverty and homelessness and exposure to the elements, they're fleeing back to Venezuela because it was actually better in Venezuela than it is here. That's how we got to this point is, yes, some combination of elected and unelected folks on the left have demanded they're not going to compromise with us. We're going to be the ones to bend. And if we don't, we're something like terrorists. All the while, they pump our children's minds 
full of godlessness and sympathy for terrorists, actual terrorists, even as they increasingly frame us as terrorists. We're making the country less safe. No, no, I don't think so. I think you're making the country less safe, but then it'll just have to hit a brick wall, in my view, in order for this to break loose. It's going to keep on building this tension between Democrats and socialists and leftists on the one hand and Republicans of the sort who say no and no means no. It's just going to keep on building until some major come apart happens where these sleeper cells launch attacks. Uh, Our youth decide that they're going to tear down the system, not just tear down statues. They're tired of that. They ran out of statues. They're going to tear down the system now that those statues were symbolic of uh, a way of thinking, a way of life, a way of governing ourselves and being governed. Either that happens or we're attacked by a foreign power. One of those things I think is going to happen before you see Democrats and Republicans really truly listening to each other. And by that, I mean the Democrats willing to listen to Republicans who say no means no. And this is what we're going to do instead. For our next to last item of interest, though, for this episode, let's turn back to Edward Teach at Not the Bee with some audio. I'll play for you cut three here of some remarks. A reporter asking a question of President Joe Biden regarding Xi Jinping, who had been in the U.S. this week and was very warmly received in San Francisco, of all places, of course. (laughs) Where else but San Francisco? Actually, most places where Democrats hold sway would welcome, I think, Xi Jinping. So long as the ruling elites, the corporate heads, the folks who have profited most off of warm relations with China or looking the other way with the abuses of China, as long as they were coordinating things. But here was a question and an answer posed to President Joe Biden. I'll play the audio for you, and then I'll tell you why. Here's cut three. Take a listen. Mr. President, after today, would you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? This is a term uh, that you used earlier this Okay, there's the audio. Very brief, I know. But what you didn't hear is the look on the Secretary of State's face. As the camera was focused on him, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, as Biden says, well, he is, right? Would you stand by your remarks from earlier this year that Xi Jinping is a dictator? And the answer is yes, he is. And Blinken, Secretary of State for the United States of America, the look on his face is disgust. And he's appalled. I mean, it's palpable. There's this like, oh, no, Joe, don't, don't. You can't say that. But why though, right? Why can't you say that Xi Jinping is a dictator? Why? Because folks like Blinken want warm relations. They want to normalize relations with China. They want to curry favor. They want to sweep everything under the rug that China has done for years and for decades under communist rule. And they want our economies to continue on 
being coupled. But then that goes just one place. That goes to global dominance of China over the whole world, including but not limited to the U.S., If we're not clear on Xi being a dictator, and he is by definition a dictator, so he dictates, he says this is what it is, and there's no check and balance on Xi Jinping. There isn't. That's how you know when somebody is a dictator is when they can't be disagreed with. They can't be told, no, that's not true. That's not right. We're going to cross-examine you. We're going to criticize you. We're going to debate this. Nope, we're going to stop you from that. Nope, it's going to be this instead. Nope, we're going to modify over here. When you can't modify anything, it is a dictatorship. Because what is a dictator? Somebody who dictates, who says, this is how it's going to be. Singular, highly concentrated, one person with lots of power. And what's so interesting is it's always Xi, right? We talk about China's leadership and we recognize it's the Chinese Communist Party, but it's always Xi. It's Xi who is in charge. Look at what happens to anybody who disagrees with him or is critical of the CCP. All of a sudden, they disappear. So there is no cross-examination. There is no dissent. There is no being critical. There is no other idea. There is no plan B. When Xi wants it a certain way, he is the people's leader. And so he, supposedly embodying all of the wishes of all of the people of China, can then do whatever to make that person however wealthy they were, however influential they were just prior to having been critical, disappear. Disappear. You just don't hear from them anymore. Or next thing you'll hear, next thing you'll see is them being ushered out of the room in public with the cameras rolling very conspicuously, very disturbingly, even if they were the previous person who ruled the country in the position that Xi's in now, everybody will murmur if they say anything, if they even look. But that is what it means to be unpersoned. You're no longer even worth a glance if Xi doesn't want you to look sympathetically or look concerned. In our country, Anthony Blinken can make faces while Joe Biden is answering a question. He's not going to be disappeared, but he will be criticized. And that's not the same thing as what happens in China. And oh, by the way, this goes right back to the devolving appreciation for what it will mean if America is a collapsed state, a failed state, what it will mean, yes, internationally, but also what it will mean for us here at home in America. You think young people who are affirming Osama bin Laden's letter from 2002, a letter to America, you think you know that America is this terrible, horrible country. America's got problems. Don't get me wrong. America needs to humble itself before the mighty hand of God. Absolutely. But judgment If it comes because we won't humble ourselves or because a lot of us have actually been deceived by our enemies and we don't have a bigger enemy right now than China, if we've been deceived by our own enemies into believing they would be a far cry more just, more equitable, just wait. That's not humility. That's not like I talked about in my previous episode, all about humility, its causes and effects biblical, true humility, that's not humility to hate your own country, to hate yourself, to hate your government because you've been propagandized by the radical left. That's not humility. That's folly. That's not biblical humility to say, oh, we can't possibly know right from wrong. We can't possibly know true from false. So let's just tear down everything that's been built up because we just stumbled across a letter from 
11 years ago, a dozen years ago, you know, we didn't even know this letter existed. Well, that's because you're a low information voter who's being led around by your nose by TikTok, which is Chinese state media, essentially, for your generation to condition you for being ruled by China. This is terribly, terribly concerning that Anthony Blinken makes this face. It really does express so much of what our federal government's bureaucracy is motivated by and driven by, not just right now, not just under Biden, but for quite some time. When the Democrats get to appoint who they appoint so much of the time, this is the sensibility. This is the attitude, especially under Obama and Biden before Biden became president, when he was still vice president. This was the mentality. This was the attitude and the posture. We're really sorry for being strong. Why? Because we agree that everything is oppressor versus oppressed. And because we're stronger and wealthier and more prosperous, we need to be brought low. Why? So that everything can be redistributed. The wealth and the power can be redistributed to countries like China. Or China can do the redistributing, which is exactly what's been happening. That's how they've been able to colonize so successfully the developing world all over the world, investing in an infrastructure that essentially serves as a kind of economic shackle, but then also a military deterrent against those colonized peoples getting an independent thought and saying, nah, this is ours. This is our country. Nope, not so fast. Not once you've invited the Chinese in. They're not going to let you just go back to the way that it was. America is the world's last best hope, at least for the foreseeable future, for being free from communist oppression. And you haven't seen communist oppression, you young people. All you've heard is communist talking points criticizing America. Anthony Blinken making faces while Joe Biden is answering, actually, correctly, yeah, he is a dictator. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he is. Oh, but Joe Biden is saying the kinds of things that you can't say when you want to be on the right side of a communist dictatorship. You can't call them dictators because that would be critical. That is critical of the communist leader. And if there's one thing communists can't take, it's cross-examination. And that's why they silence dissent. That's why they suppress anybody who would disagree with them or come up with an independent thought. This is very concerning. For our last story, though, let's talk about Liberty, Authority, and the Good of Religion, February 27th, 2009, published in the Journal of the Witherspoon Institute, Public Discourse, thepublicdiscourse.com. Author Christopher O. Tollefson says religious liberty and religious authority are frequently seen in tension, but they need not conflict. In fact, a proper understanding of both shows that they are equally necessary for full human flourishing. Before I say any more, before I read for you this article, I'll point out that the featured image is of a very impressive stained glass somewhere. And when I first saw this photo, I thought, wow, that is really spectacular. I wonder where that is. It's a spiral pattern, obviously looking up from inside of the structure. And you see all of these various colors, beautifully worked panels that just spiral up like a staircase going up and up to the center. But I thought, wow, it's weird how it's just colors, right? It's just 
colors, and yes, it's stained glass, and yes, it's beautiful, but I don't see any characters. I don't see any stories being portrayed. There are no, say, for instance, biblical narratives being showcased as would be more common with stained glass, particularly in a church, which is what I would expect. Most stained glass is to be found in churches. You would think, historically, that's the association. And so when I first encountered this article a few months back, I did an image search, a Google image search, and I ended up finding that this is a structure down in Texas that was built, and I don't recall at the moment whether it was Houston or it was Dallas possibly, but it's in downtown in the middle of a park, and it's patterned after a minaret, as in a typical Islamic religious structure. And it's basically this new agey world religion monument. And that's why there aren't biblical stories in the stained glass. It has an appearance of godliness, but it denies its power in saying, we're going to worship God in an abstract. This is basically an altar to an unknown God for an increasingly secular, yes, even Texas city. But all that said, maybe it's all the more appropriate as a featured image for many, many things, as it turns out. Lots of people have used this as a featured image. I found that out when I did the Google image search, but maybe it's appropriate that it's used for a feature image on this particular article by Christopher O. Tollefson, which we'll get into now, and you'll see why. He wrote back in 2009, some 14 and a half years ago, contemporary culture is often hostile to the idea of authority in general and to religious authority in particular. Religious liberty, on the other hand, is readily grasped as a core value of the West. How the two can be harmonized strikes many as an insurmountable difficulty, but properly understood, religious authority need be in no conflict with religious liberty. That proper understanding, however, requires a prior appreciation of the distinctive value of religion. One foundational judgment of practical reason is that religion is a basic good to be pursued. That is to say, any human being thinking clearly about the range of possibilities that could make him well off will recognize that being right with, i.e. conforming one's will to, whatever greater than human source of meaning there might be is an intelligibly attractive possibility. Most people, recognizing the good at stake, seek to discover whether there is such a source. But not every agent who makes this judgment and acts upon it, believes that there is such a more-than-human source of meaning. Concluding that no such source exists, some people seek to realize the good of religion by making their peace with the absence of this source of meaning. But for the many who consider it more reasonable to believe that such a being exists, it is then necessary to ask who and what such a being might be, and to ask how one is to be made right with that being in one's life and action. These deliberations involve a mix of speculative and moral considerations. While the existence of a creator can plausibly be known through the use of natural reason, this creator is not entirely and unmistakably presented to us as the god of some particular revelation or religious tradition. How then have some people arrived at such robust conceptions of God? After arriving at the reasonable conclusion that God exists, many people further judge that God has offered mankind signs and opportunities by which we may come to know and love him. 
He has, in other words, extended to us the possibility of a personal relationship. Such a relationship is itself a human good, and its desirability and the desirability and even necessity of accepting that offer is recognized by practical reason in a concrete judgment that I should, for example, accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and henceforth strive to act as he would have me act, or that I should submit to Allah and follow the teachings of the Prophet. Similar practical judgments, albeit to different conclusions, are made by others who have accepted different possible revelations as true and have acted accordingly. So basically, this is talking all around, and it feels a bit not sophisticated, but it feels like sophistry. This is to say, you might believe in God, you might not believe in God. You might just come to terms with the fact that we don't know. You know, if there is a God, how could we know him? We can't know anything about him. That might be your conclusion. Or you might come to the conclusion after you believe that there is a God who created that the Bible and Christianity is the true revelation of who this God is, that we would worship him, that we would serve him, that we would obey him, that we would trust in him and live how he tells us to live. Or you might be a Muslim. That's another option. But notice how this is presented. It's presented so far to this point in very neutral tones. Yeah, some people believe this. Some people believe that. There are lots of ways to orient your beliefs. Aaron Wren would say and did say that this 2009 published date was still within neutral world. Yeah, Christianity is one among many religions. Okay, great. You're a Christian. Anyways, now we live in negative world. So it's not presented. (laughs) I don't know that this article would be written this way today. Like it's all the same. The new atheists came in, shook things up, made a special target of Christianity. The God of the Bible, Richard Dawkins would say, is the worst villain in the whole history of the world. Okay, Satan, thanks. Get behind me. But then a lot of folks responded to the new atheists, not by becoming atheists themselves, but by becoming agnostic, or if they still held to a profession of Christian faith, trying to appear to be very enlightened, trying to talk around the blunt truth that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Back to Tolfson's piece. Conscience and its acts are thus at the root of our pursuit of the good of religion and of our acceptance of our faith in some particular religious tradition. And surely that faith's perfection will be found where the revelation is accepted as true. And human flourishing will be compromised to some extent insofar as the revelation accepted is false. Considerations of this sort are at the root of sound thinking about freedom of religion. There is an obligation to seek religious truth and choose in accordance with what one acknowledges as religious truth. But the seeking, the judging, and especially the conforming all require freedom. Such freedom is both existential, the freedom of being a person, and social slash legal, the freedom of political liberty in a non-threatening, non-coercive context. The result of one's deliberations and acts of faith when considering one's possible relationship to a supreme being can play a unique role in the rest of one's practical deliberations consider the illusion that in being self-constituting, we are self-sufficient, reliant only upon ourselves for successfully actualizing our possibilities. Such a thought is truly illusory. We are not responsible for our own existence, nor are we responsible for existing as the kinds of beings we are with a particular set of goods that are beneficial for us. Further, 
Our success in pursuing those goods through judgment, choice, and action is not of our own making. By my own power, I do not have the capacity to ensure the continued existence of the world through to the completion of any act I perform, much less the particular set of conditions necessary for success rather than failure in my actions. Indeed, I can no more ensure even the existence of my acts of judgment and will while exercising those power. Literally, everything that I am, everything that I do, and every measure of my success must be seen as accomplished in overwhelming reliance upon something or someone else. Okay, full stop there. True, right? True. Think of this as laying a foundation. This is to admit that you are finite and the world keeps spinning without your say-so. Now, since 2009 thanks to Al Gore, thanks to the radical left, thanks to the same kinds of folks who've been peddling critical race theory, radical gender theory. There are a lot of folks who actually believe that our actions are what the world continuing to exist depends on. There are a growing number of people at all levels, you know, the very elite folk who get together in Davos, Switzerland and other places, San Francisco also sometimes, to discuss how to keep the world spinning, how to combat climate change. Those folk at least are messaging to the rest of us that we should put all of our eggs in their basket and they will save us from climate change, for instance, for example, or from poverty or from World War III or fill in the blank. But then what have many of those folk forgotten? They themselves are dependent beings. Now, what they haven't forgotten, and you would know this if you really got into asking them some practical questions of, okay, well, why don't you speak up on this? Why don't you do something about that? Why don't you engage on this issue? Or why don't you tell so-and-so that they're a dictator while they're visiting? (laughs) What they would say, if they were honest, you might have to listen for it, but what they would say is, we are very interdependent on those people or on people who are dependent on those people or who want those people to be in positions of power and not criticized and not disagreed with. Say, for instance, if you have a whole lot of folk who are doing big business with China and you don't want China all of a sudden saying, we're going to nationalize your companies, your assets, we're going to seize them, we're going to take your intellectual property, we're going to go to war with you. There's an interdependence in order to maintain the peace or maintain economic activity between the two countries or what have you, there's an interdependence that we'll admit to, but then that's a dangerous thing when you're only dependent on fallible man. And maybe some of the people you're dependent on don't believe in religious liberty. Say, for instance, the communist Chinese don't believe in religious liberty. They don't. They believe in you having the freedom to do whatever they tell you to do. That's your freedom. If they say you're going to go to church in one of our state-approved churches where you read one of our state-approved Bibles, where the pastor is a state-approved, state-appointed, Communist Party-approved and tested voice, then that's what it is. You're free to do that. If you say, well, but this is not the Bible. You guys corrupted it. This is not a church. You guys have manipulated it to accomplish your communistic goals, to flatter your communistic oppression. You're evil. You're saying is good with this rewritten Bible and this re-engineered church. And this pastor here is just a puppet. He's just an instrument. He's controlled opposition. He's not actually 
a pastor, not a pastor we trust. We're going to have home church. If you do that, guess what happens in communist China? If they find out that you're having one of these unapproved home churches, they come in and they arrest the whole lot of you and you get carted off and interrogated and reprimanded and punished. And maybe you just disappear. Maybe you get tortured. Maybe you get executed. If that's what accomplishes the greater good in their view. So too much interdependence with fellow man. When it's just man, when there is no religious liberty, there's no conception of being free to worship God according to the dictates of your conscience, it leads to the system being locked in place and intractable. And when it's coupled with those who claim to believe in religious liberty from outside, say for instance in America, but all the while they don't have virtue themselves, they don't have faith in God themselves, they have faith in themselves, and they just pay lip service to religious liberty at home and abroad, then the real problem is not what the communist Chinese are doing, but that we would say we should do something about it, that we would call it evil, that we would criticize it. But then it's a hop, skip, and a jump from that to basically we're under new management, essentially, and the communist Chinese call the tune because they pay the piper. Back to Tollefson. He writes, back in 2009, it is natural from the standpoint of one who has answered questions about the existence of a transcendent source of meaning affirmatively to identify the source as the cooperating agent and to see thereby every endeavor as part of a potentially cooperative relationship with this being. It is likewise natural to see that being's revelation as an invitation to us to accept his guidance in that cooperative relationship once every action from this standpoint will be suffused with both gratitude for the gift that has been given, attentiveness to what God is asking of us as regards our participation in the relationship, and profound significance insofar as everything that we do will either contribute positively or negatively to the building up of that relationship. We may call that relationship to which we are called our vocation. And oh, by the way, let's be honest, that's a Protestant idea that your vocation would be what God has called you to, specifically you personally, what he has gifted you with in the way of talents, abilities, proclivities, temperament perhaps, resources, time and place. That's vocation, doctrine of vocation. It's a very Protestant thing. It's not just an abstract idea that comes from everybody. Not everybody agrees with that. Not everybody sees it that way. Protestant thinking, Protestant theology can be credited with a doctrine of vocation in the West. Tollefson continues, what then justifies religious authority? There are two justifying reasons, one primary, the other secondary. The primary reason for religious authority must be that some set of persons are believed to be in a special epistemic position as regards what God wishes of human beings in order that the human divine relationship be protected and promoted. Call this magisterial authority. And again, he's not necessarily giving credit to where these things come from. He's just mentioning them and saying, oh, we could call it that, well, it, but it's already been called that but I digress, but not really. We should know where these things come from, and we shouldn't be embarrassed and ashamed of where these things come from. It is magisterial authority, according to a Protestant, again, Protestant conception of these things. But he says, call this magisterial authority. The secondary reason is that some form of quasi-political authority, call it ecclesial authority is necessary in order to coordinate the actions of those persons who together take themselves to be oriented towards God and his purposes by way of some magisterial authority or other. 
when some set of persons are believed to possess and believe themselves to possess a special awareness of or access to the divine plan for human divine relationships. And it is believed, including believed by those persons themselves, that part of the divine plan involves their promulgation of that plan, then those persons' assertions and other acts related to the divine plan will be taken to be authoritative in a strictly religious and magisterial sense. What those persons proscribe and prescribe as regards actions and beliefs will be taken to give believers good and indeed overriding reasons for action and belief, even in cases in which the believers might otherwise have thought some other belief or action justified. Again, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be overly critical. I feel like this was a product of the times. This was a product, this was the kind of piece that would be written about this subject in what Aaron Wren calls neutral world. Yeah, that's one way to live your life. Yeah, people believe that. People also believe all kinds of things. We should all be free to believe whatever we want, but nobody should be given special preference. Just let people do what they'll do and believe what they'll believe. Yeah, you can try and convince people. Sure, whatever. That's fine. We've seen how that went. We've seen where that goes. In short order, positive world giving way to neutral world. Neutral world can even more quickly give way to negative world, which we currently inhabit. Back to Tollefson. Absent magisterial authority, there might be the authority common to other voluntary associations, all of which also need some locus for authoritative decision-making in order that a common way of proceeding be initiated and maintained by the members of the association. But while a religious club might indeed need and have such an authority, there seems no particular point in calling this religious authority. Moreover, a political authority might have religious functions without being taken to have the special epistemic position characteristic of religious authority. Again, I see no need to think of this as religious authority in the primary sense. Now, it appears that under these conditions, it is not the case that a non-coercive religious authority, that is an authority which cannot punish with a sword, is ever in a position to violate the conscience or religious liberty of its members or its alleged members, for those members are either believers, in which case they look to the magisterial authority for guidance and receiving it, take it to be authoritative for the formation of the conscience, or they are not believers, perhaps because having consulted their consciences and exercised their reasoning capacities, they no longer believe in the privileged epistemic position of the magisterial authorities. These agents, whom the magisterial authority is unable to coerce, are free to leave the set of believers or accept what non-coercive, because avoidable at will punishments, such as excommunication or lighter discipline, the ecclesial authority may meet out, just as agents in any other voluntary association are free to leave or accept that association's non-coercive punishments. At the same time, it is also clear based on what has been said, that a mingling of religious authority and political or coercive authority is inappropriate, given the nature and importance of conscience and the good of religion. Yet it is important to see this as the locus of abuse, not the exercise of magisterial authority as such, religious authority that is exercised with genuinely coercive power. That sort of power characteristic of the political state is a perversion of both religious and political authority and is inadequate to the tasks of either. Magisterial authority need pose no threat to religious liberty, and if the claims of some magisterial authority are true, then such authority must be considered essential for the fullest participation in the good of religion. Okay, so <clears throat> that's the end. That's the whole of the article, right? What is he saying? What is he talking about? You could boil this all down very, very simply to separation of church and state. The church should do its thing. The state should do its thing. And nobody should be coerced with regards to religion. Well, the problem there is, going back to 2 Samuel chapter 8, 
very clearly, it's presented as a good thing in verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity, I would say righteousness, because that's how it's translated everywhere else, 150 times translated right, righteous, righteousness. David administered justice and righteousness to all his people. In the person of David, the separation of church and state, drum beaters will say, we have, that was for then, this is now. But then the kinds of claims that Tolfson is making back in 2009 in the thick of neutral world, yeah, that's one way to live your life, attitudes being prevalent, being ascendant, the types of arguments he's making are categorical. They're not narrowly defined to our specific context. He's making these general universal claims like this is for all times and places and anywhere, anytime, any place, and anybody who has not adhered to this thereby proved themselves to be not up to the task. Not really. They shouldn't have had either ecclesial authority or magisterial authority. They shouldn't have had civil authority, that is, reigning over a country, for instance, ruling and reigning as a king over a country, and they shouldn't have had any religious authority if they were a priest or they were a bishop or they were a pope or what have you. But then if that's true, why do we have Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 15? David administered justice and equity, that is, righteousness to all his people. Why? As if you don't get Justice being administered, absent what God says is true and good, being the measure for who you reward and who you would prohibit. No, you are not allowed to murder. Why? Well, because, you know, uh, for all times and places, uh, the vast majority of human beings have agreed that murder is wrong. Or we conducted a poll and 51% of us believe that murder is not advantageous. Well, but what about when it is? What if 51% or what if unelected bureaucrats or what if some very motivated activists say that murder is very advantageous. And what if they make tortured arguments about how it's very good for the life? And by this, they mean the quality of life of the mother, even if they would mix it in with talk of miscarriages to muddy the water. But they'll say it's for the sake of the life of the mother. That's good, right? What about it's good for the would-be father who, you know, he's not wanting to be a father and he's not ready. It's good for the child, actually. You know, there's a mercy to the child who would be born if we didn't abort them, that is murder them, if the Christian comes in at that point and says, this is wrong because God said, thou shalt not murder. God said on the short list of what's abominable to him is the shedding of innocent blood. You don't get any more innocent than an unborn child in his mother's womb. This is the shedding of innocent blood. This is murder. God said, this is evil. You are not permitted to do this thing. You will be punished if we catch you doing this thing You'll be punished as a murderer because it's murder. Yes, also the mother. If the mother says, I'm going to go and get an abortion, I want an abortion, I want to travel to a place where I can get an abortion, she's a murderer. You know, what if one of our states in this country says, up to the age of five, it's permissible to quote unquote abort your child? It's still murder. If somebody's in the military and the Pentagon says, you know, women should have the right to choose up until the age of five years old, I mean, yeah, I mean, how much of a person is a five-year-old, if they you know, haven't had all the life experience that we as adults have, maybe it would be a mercy in some cases. You know, The mom tried it out for a few years. She just wasn't cut out for it. It's not working for her with her military service. She, you know, she's 
signed a contract. She's made an agreement to serve her country. Like Kirby said in a press conference, she's made a commitment. These military service members have made a commitment to this country, and we're going to commit to them right back to what? To make war on their unborn child with them on their behalf? Will the Pentagon then say, yes, we'll pay for you to travel to California probably or New York where it's legal to abort your five-year-old child or your four-year-old child if you've decided you don't want to be a mother anymore? Quite frankly, I think Christopher O. Tollefson's piece about the good of religion is muddied thinking. It's not clear. There are some true things that he says in there. Don't get me wrong. But this as a counter to what is called, uncarefully by most, Christian nationalism, this is how we got to this point in the first place, where now, this week, we have young people reading Osama bin Laden's letter to America and saying, he's right. Nature abhors a vacuum. And I wrote about this in my book, and this is why we homeschool. Nature abhors a vacuum. You create a vacuum as pertains to morality. Something, someone's conception of right and wrong will fill that vacuum. If you say it can't be Christianity, well, then it will be anti-Christianity. But that's still a religious position. You haven't avoided, you haven't skirted religion. And oh, by the way, Islam is a religion, but it's not just a religion. It's a approach to organizing your economy, organizing society. They don't regard a separation of church and state as legitimate. They'll pay lip service. <laughs> they'll pay lip service to it for now. Sure, in the West, sure, here and there, just enough until they become the majority, and then they'll say, "All right, that's over and done with." Now it's we set the policy. We tell you what the laws are. Now you will live according to our morality. What we say is right. No, you will not be proselytizing, especially to those who were born to Muslim families or who grew up Muslim or who are Muslims now. You will not proselytize because why? That's blasphemy. You create a moral vacuum and then what fills the moral vacuum very happily, very readily is the Marxist with his Marxist ideas. Because, oh, by the way, as bizarre as it might be to think of, Marxism is more like a religion. It's more like Islam than it is like Platonism or Stoicism. Marxism isn't just a philosophy. It's a philosophy with a very adamant claim regarding the existence of God, the relevance of God's judgment, his authority. And Marx was fascinated by Satan. And that comes through loud and clear in the conclusions he came to. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, you can't have adultery if nobody belongs to anybody. If no woman belongs to her husband. Yeah, let's get away from this possessive. You know, let's and I I've heard that recently, very recently, disturbingly recently. There were some young people connected with our youth group who were expressing discomfort at woman or wife, my woman, his woman, being how somebody would describe their wife. Oh, that's too possessive. Yeah, but that's what it means. If I say my wife, I'm talking about my wife, like that is possessive. She's not anybody else's wife. She's my wife. If I talk about my children, I'm being possessive. Yeah, they're my children. That's the basis for my being responsible to them before God, to provide, to protect, to train, to equip. They're not everybody's kids. What in the world? What's wrong with you guys? What are you talking about? That's too possessive. 
you might just as soon say it's too possessive for us to describe Christ as our Lord and Savior. Although that's a little different, obviously. And even in the case of children, my children are my children. They're also my wife's children, but they're not everybody's children. That's the point. And that's also the point with regards to God. As a Christian, my God is not everybody's God. We do not all worship the same God. My God is my God. And if you don't worship him and you worship some other God or you think that it's all the same, no, you're wrong. How do I know that? It is written. I hope and I pray if the world stands, it's a short span of time that we inhabit negative world because if the world stands, provided Christ doesn't return as things are on a very bad trajectory, it's going to be a really ugly place to be. Here in America, as it all falls apart, as you have young people openly, publicly on TikTok, a Chinese propaganda outlet for young people, this generation's Pravda, as you have the Chinese cooking the algorithms to help young people come to the realization that all of America's enemies, even the most hated enemies, are actually right. Yeah, you know, he was right. He was right. Why didn't we see it sooner? Death to America. It gets worse from here. And maybe it just does, right? It just gets worse from here for a time. But if the world stands, God willing, we live and do this or that, it gets worse for a time. And then, yes, there's conflict and there's judgment. And I believe, personally, I'm not a pacifist. I believe passages just like 2 Samuel chapter 8, where David's victories are presented as actually a good thing. One, it's okay that there was conflict. You know, it's not everybody's at fault. And it's definitely not... Whoever wins, they're definitely, they were the bad guys, right? David was definitely the bad guy here. He's the oppressor. Israel, they're the oppressors. These six nations, they were oppressed by Israel. No, 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 no. As I've said before, where that kind of thinking ultimately goes, and I think where it actually came from, but it's working in reverse for most people who have been brainwashed into it, is it ultimately goes to casting God in the role of the ultimate villain. If whoever's the strongest, whoever has the most, is the oppressor, and those who don't have the strength and they don't have the wealth and they don't have the authority, if they're the oppressed, if whoever wins is the oppressor and whoever loses is the oppressed, well then who would be more of an oppressor than God? But then that's satanic. That's straight from the pit of hell. Alternatively, The history of the West is filled with people who did occupy positions of civil authority, and they did wield authority in a very honestly, very openly Christian way. Not perfectly, not everybody who claimed to be Christian and wielded civil authority did so in an honorable way that we should celebrate or affirm. But there definitely were people, there have been people for 2,000 years who have had various positions of authority. How do I know? Because Jesus taught as one with authority, for one. For another thing, we have the offices within the church being established. We have the authority of the husband in the home over his wife, the authority of the father over his children in the home being affirmed in the New Testament. And then we have the better part of 2,000 years of history in the West, wherein when Christians get into a position of civil authority in their community or in their nation— They don't lay aside their Christianity so that they can, you know, do this job right. Do it how it needs to be done, according to the pagans. If somebody who has authority already, let's say a king or a chieftain or what have you, converts to Christianity, they don't lay aside their civil authority. Their authority over a people 
just because now they've become a Christian. So if the world stands, I dare say what comes after negative world, if we survive it (laughs) here in America, what comes after must be getting back in touch with David's victories, for instance, for example. One, if you have civil authority, you have what? You have a responsibility to protect your people. Against whom? Against their enemies, present and future enemies. What does that mean? That means fighting. That means war. That means battles. That means, yes, killing. That means conquering, if you can. If you can not just, every time they step over the border into your land, fight them back, but actually go into their borders and neutralize their capacity to make war on you in the future. That's what you do. That's what David did. And it was a sign that God was with him. That that seems so foreign to us is proof positive that it's not just the public schools and it's not just popular culture and it's not just higher education and it's not just unelected bureaucrats. It's also the mainstream of evangelical Christianity in far too many cases that has wanted us to forget these things, wanting us to repudiate them. In due time, I trust we actually will have a restoration and a revival of Christian authority not just in this country, but over the whole world with the return of Christ. When Christ returns, he's not going to say to everybody who worships God however they want or doesn't worship God, if that's their preference, he's not going to say, yeah, it's all good. Yeah, whatever you were doing, totally fine. No, no. So if you have an uncareful and an uncritical stance with regards to separation of church and state, where you say religious authority, so-called, cannot at all, cannot at all bear any relation, say for instance, scripture, the Bible, the Bible is my worldview, like Mike Johnson, recently appointed speaker of the House of Representatives, said, the Bible is my worldview. If you say, oh, that's not permissible, well then you're not at all prepared for the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, Jesus our Lord, because he will rule and reign over the whole world in righteousness. So take care. That's the point. And if there are opportunities, say, for instance, for a father and a husband to exercise authority in a godly way in his home, living with his wife in an understanding way, not provoking his children to wrath, for instance, for example, a husband and a father does not lay aside his Christianity to execute his duties to fulfill his responsibilities as a husband and a father. Not if he's a Christian. No, he doesn't. He can't. That's where he gets the idea of what his responsibilities are in the first place and how he should execute them. How could he lay aside his Christianity to do that job properly? And how absurd would it be if we said those in authority in the church, nah, you, you know, you don't actually have any authority whatsoever. Yeah, you, you have to lay aside all authority in order to have this title. We'll still call you by this title. Yeah, but you can't wield any authority in the church. Or if you do, it always has to be while laying aside your own private Christian convictions because that's what they need to be. They need to remain private Christian convictions. How absurd is that? That's completely upside down. It doesn't always need to be command and control. Of course, it needs, I think, to be very seldom command and control the people who occupy official offices in the church, telling everybody what to do all the time in every little particular, exceeding the bounds of their authority. They do have boundaries to their authority, but then that is to say they have boundaries. They have authority in the church, for instance, to protect the sheep from wolves, false teachers, false teaching, to make disciples of all nations, or to equip the saints for the work of ministry, or to teach them all that Christ has commanded that we would obey 
all that Christ has commanded us? So also, in the third sphere of magisterial Protestant thinking on the various spheres of government, when it comes to the civil sphere, it's not that somebody in a position of civil authority approaches the wielding of their authority, their duties, just exactly like a husband and a father would relate to his wife and his children, or like a pastor or a deacon would relate to the members of their local church, their local body of believers. No, but some things here carry through, like, say, for instance, Romans 13. God institutes authorities. All authority that exists is instituted by God, which is to say that authority does exist among men. And if you don't believe it, if you don't act like it, if you don't have anybody wielding authority or you don't respect anybody having authority— then guess what? The godless will definitely lord it over you. They will definitely fill that vacuum and not just the vacuum for you, also for everybody around you. It will take repression and the consequences for our folly and our pride and our stubbornness to persuade some of us that that's not what we want. That's not what we should have. But better still would be we humble ourselves before the Lord on the front end to where we don't go there. We don't go that place. We don't hide our lamp under a bushel. We don't act like salt that's lost its savor. I'm rooting for that. I'm praying for that. You should pray for that as well. You should root for that as well. We'll keep thinking it through. We'll keep processing. And the Lord grant us wisdom and grace and patience and peace. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. In the meantime, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.